Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Hello and welcome to this week's show. In the last two shows, I brought to you part one and part two of A Separate Reality by my friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. Tonight, I'm going to present a reading of the final chapters. And uh, starting next week, I'm going to start introducing you to some of the Toltec shamanic techniques of my lineage and slowly introduce you to some of the core or hidden knowledge that is not available to the public. And now I present a reading of the final chapters of A Separate Reality. I was very taken by his description of my death. I had expected to hear something so different. I could not say anything for a long time. Death enters through the belly, he continued, right through the gap of the will. That area is the most important and sensitive part of a man. It is the area of the will and also the area through which all of us die. I know it because my ally has guided me to that stage. A sorcerer tunes his will by letting his death overtake him. And when he is flat and begins to expand, his impeccable will takes over and assembles the fog into one person again. Don Juan made a strange gesture. He opened his hands like two fans, lifted them to the level of his elbows, turned them until his thumbs were touching his sides, and then brought them slowly together at the center of his body, over his navel. He kept them there for a moment. His arms shivered with the strain. Then he brought them up until the tips of his middle fingers touched his forehead, and then pulled them down in the same position to the center of his body. It was a formidable gesture. Don Juan had performed it with such force and beauty that I was spellbound. Later on, he wanted me to drive him to the nearby town. I mentioned that driving would be a welcome change for me because I was still shaky. The idea that a sorcerer actually played with his death was quite gruesome to me. To be a sorcerer is a terrible burden, he said in a reassuring tone. I've told you that it is much better to learn to see. A man who sees is everything. In comparison, the sorcerer is a sad fellow. What is sorcery, Don Juan? He looked at me for a long time as he shook his head almost imperceptibly. Sorcery is to apply one's will to a key joint, he said. Sorcery is interference. A sorcerer searches and finds the key joint of anything he wants to affect, and then he applies his will to it. A sorcerer doesn't have to see to be a sorcerer. All he has to know is how to use his will. I asked him to explain what he meant by a key joint. He thought for a while, and then he said that he knew what my car was. It's obviously a machine, I said. I mean your car is the spark plugs. That's its key joint for me. I can apply my will to it, and your car won't work. Don Juan got into my car and sat down. He beckoned me to do likewise as he made himself comfortable on the seat. Turn on your car now, Don Juan said. I turned on the starter and automatically stepped on the gas pedal. The starter began to grind without igniting the engine. Don Juan's laughter was a soft, rhythmical cackle. I tried it again and again. 
I spent perhaps ten minutes grinding the starter of my car. Don Juan cackled all that time. Then I gave up and sat there with a heavy head. I had the certainty Don Juan had only mesmerized me with his laughter and made me believe I could not start my car. With the corner of my eye, I saw him looking curiously at me as I ground the motor and pumped the gas furiously. Don Juan patted me gently and said that fury would make me solid, and perhaps I would not need to be washed in the water again. The more furious I could get, the quicker I could recover from my encounter with the ally. Don't be embarrassed, I heard Don Juan saying. Kick the car. His natural everyday laughter exploded, and I felt ridiculous and laughed sheepishly. After a while, Don Juan said he had released the car. It started. September 28, 1969. There was something eerie about Don Juan's house. For a moment, I thought he was hiding somewhere around the place to scare me. I called out to him and then gathered enough nerve to walk inside. Don Juan was not there. I put the two bags of groceries I had brought on a pile of firewood and sat down to wait for him as I had done dozens of times before. But for the first time in my years of associating with Don Juan, I was afraid to stay alone in his house. I felt a presence, as if someone invisible was there with me. I remembered then that years before I had had the same vague feeling that something unknown was prowling around me when I was alone. I jumped to my feet and ran out of the house. I had come to see Don Juan to tell him that the cumulative effect of the task of seeing was taking its toll on me. I'd begun to feel uneasy vaguely apprehensive without any overt reason, tired without being fatigued. Then my reaction at being alone in Don Juan's house brought back the total memory of how my fear had built up in the past. The fear traced back to years before when Don Juan had forced the very strange confrontation between a sorceress, a woman he called La Catalina, and me. It began on November 23, 1961, when I found him in his house with a dislocated ankle. He explained that he had an enemy a sorceress who could turn into a blackbird and who had attempted to kill him. I came back to Don Juan's house hours later in the early afternoon. He was apparently waiting for me. He came up to me as I got out of my car and examined me with curious eyes, walking around me a couple of times. Why the nervousness, he asked, before I had time to say anything. I explained that something had scared me off that morning and that I had begun to feel something prowling around me as in the past. Don Juan sat down and seemed to be engulfed in thoughts. His face had an unusually serious expression. He seemed to be tired. I sat by him and arranged my notes. You forget too easily, he said. The world is indeed full of frightening things, and we are helpless creatures surrounded by forces that are inexplicable and unbending. The average man, in ignorance, believes that those forces can be explained or changed. He doesn't really know how to do that but he expects that the actions of mankind will explain them or change them sooner or later. The sorcerer, on the other hand, does not think of explaining or changing them. Instead, he learns to use such forces by redirecting himself and adapting to their direction. A sorcerer, by opening himself to knowledge, falls prey to such forces and has only one means of balancing himself, his will. Thus he must feel and act like a warrior. I will repeat this once more. Only as a warrior can one survive the path of knowledge. What helps a sorcerer live a better life is the strength of being a warrior. This brings us to the last point you must know about a warrior, he said. A warrior selects the items that make his world. Act like a warrior and select the items of your world. 
You cannot surround yourself with things helter-skelter any longer. I tell you this in a most serious vein. Now, for the first time, you're not safe in your old way of life. Years ago, I told you that in his day-to-day -day life, a warrior chooses to follow the path with heart. It is the consistent choice of the path with heart which makes a warrior different from the average man. He knows that a path has a heart when he is one with it, when he experiences a great peace and pleasure traversing its length. The things a warrior selects to make his shields are the items of a path with heart. This is your turning point. Now you must surround yourself with the items of a path with heart, and you must refuse the rest or you will perish in the next encounter. I may add that you don't need to ask for the encounter any longer. An ally can now come to you in your sleep, while you are talking to your friends, while you are writing. For years I have truly tried to live in accordance with your teachings, I said. Obviously I have not done well. How can I do better now? You think and talk too much. You must stop talking to yourself. What do you mean? You talk to yourself too much. You're not unique at that. Every one of us does that. We carry on an internal talk. Think about it. Whenever you are alone, what do you do? I talk to myself. What do you talk to yourself about? I don't know. Anything, I suppose. I'll tell you what we talk to ourselves about. We talk about our world. In fact, we maintain our world with our internal talk. How do we do that? Whenever we finish talking to ourselves, the world is always as it should be. We renew it. We kindle it with life. We uphold it with our internal talk. Not only that, but we also choose our paths as we talk to ourselves. Thus we repeat the same choices over and over until the day we die, because we keep on repeating the same internal talk over and over until the day we die. The warrior is aware of this and strives to stop his talking. This is the last point you have to know if you want to live like a warrior. How can I stop talking to myself? First of all, you must use your ears to take some of the burden from your eyes. We have been using our eyes to judge the world since the time we were born. We talk to others and to ourselves mainly about what we see. A warrior is aware of that and listens to the world. He listens to the sounds of the world. The world is such and such or so and so only because we tell ourselves that that is the way it is. If we stop telling ourselves that the world is so-and-so, the world will stop being so-and-so. The world is incomprehensible. We won't ever understand it. We won't ever unravel its secrets. Thus, we must treat it as it is, a sheer mystery. An average man doesn't do this, though. The world is never a mystery for him, and when he arrives at old age, he is convinced he has nothing more to live for. An old man has not exhausted the world. He has only exhausted what people do. But in his stupid confusion, he believes that the world has no more mysteries for him. What a wretched price to pay for our shields. A warrior is aware of this confusion and learns to treat things properly. The things that people do cannot under any conditions be more important than the world. And thus a warrior treats the world as an endless mystery and what people do as an endless folly. I began the exercise of listening to the sounds of the world and kept at it for two months, as Don Juan had specified. It was excruciating at first to listen and not look, but even more excruciating was not to talk to myself.
By the end of the two months, I was capable of shutting off my internal dialogue for short periods of time, and I was also capable of paying attention to sounds. I arrived at Don Juan's house at 9 a.m. on November 10, 1969. We should start that trip right now, he said upon my arrival at his house. I rested for an hour, and then we drove toward the low slopes of the mountains to the east. We left my car in the care of one of his friends who lived in that area while we hiked into the mountains. In the early afternoon, we stopped in a small gully at the bottom of some lush green hills. Behind the hills, toward the east, the high mountains were silhouetted against a cloudy sky. You can think, you can write about what we say or about what you perceive, but nothing about where we are, he said. We rested for a while, and then he took a bundle from inside his shirt. He untied it and showed me his pipe. He filled its bowl with smoking mixture, lighted a match, and kindled a small dry twig, placed the burning twig inside the bowl, and told me to smoke. When I had finished smoking, he said that we were there so I could find out the kind of game I was supposed to hunt. He carefully repeated three or four times that the most important aspect of my endeavor was to find some holes. He emphasized the word holes and said that inside them a sorcerer could find all sorts of messages and directions. I wanted to ask what kind of holes they were. Don Juan seemed to have guessed my question and said that they were impossible to describe and were in the realm of seeing. He repeated at various times that I should focus all my attention on listening to sounds and do my best to find the holes between the sounds. I began to listen, and I could distinguish the whistling of birds, the wind rustling the leaves, the buzzing of insects. As I placed my individual attention on those sounds, I could actually make out four different types of bird whistlings. I could distinguish the speeds of the wind in terms of slow or fast. I could also hear the different rustlings of three types of leaves, the buzzings of insects were dazzling. The wind came high above the trees, and then it dropped into the valley where we were. Upon dropping, it touched the leaves of the tall trees first. They made a peculiar sound, which I fancied to be a sort of rich, raspy, lush sound. I could not count all the whistles of birds or buzzings of insects, yet I was convinced I was listening to each separate sound as it was produced. Together they created a most extraordinary order— I cannot call it any other thing but order. It was an order of sounds that had a pattern. That is, every sound happened in sequence. Then I heard a unique, prolonged wail. It made me shiver. Every other noise ceased for an instant, and the valley was dead still as the reverberations of the wail reached the valley's outer limits. Then the noises began again. I picked up their pattern immediately. After a moment of attentive listening, I thought I understood Don Juan's recommendation to watch for the holes between the sounds. The pattern of noises had spaces in between sounds. I heard again the piercing wail of Don Juan's spirit catcher. It did not jolt me, but the sounds again ceased for an instant, and I perceived such a cessation as a hole, a very large hole. At that precise moment, I shifted my attention from hearing to looking. I was looking at a cluster of low hills with lush green vegetation, the silhouette of the hills was arranged in such a way that from the place where I was looking, there seemed to be a hole on the side of one of the hills. It was a space in between two hills, and through it I could see the deep, dark, gray hue of the mountains in the distance. For a moment I did not know what it was. It was as if the hole I was looking at was the hole in the sound. Then the noises began again, but the visual image of the huge hole remained. A short while later, I became even more keenly aware of the pattern of sounds and their order and the arrangement of their pauses. My mind was capable of distinguishing and discriminating among an enormous number of individual sounds. I could actually keep track of all the sounds. 
Thus, each pause between sounds was a definite whole. At a given moment, the pauses became crystallized in my mind and formed a sort of solid grid, a structure. I was not seeing or hearing it. I was feeling it with some unknown part of myself. Don Juan played his string once again. The sound ceased as they had done before, creating a huge hole in the sound structure. This time, however, that big pause blended with the hole in the hills I was looking at. They became superimposed on each other. There was something of a lure about it. It dominated my field of perception, and every single sound pattern which coincided with a feature of the environment was hinged on that hole. I heard once more the eerie wail of Don Juan's spirit catcher. All other sounds stopped. The two large holes seemed to light up, and next I was looking again at the plowed field. The ally was standing there as I had seen him before. The light of the total scene became very clear. I could see him plainly, as if he were fifty yards away. I could not see his face, his hat covered it. Then he began to come toward me, lifting up his head slowly as he walked. I could almost see his face, and that terrified me. I knew I had to stop him without delay. I had a strange surge in my body. I felt an outflow of power. I wanted to move my head to the side to stop the vision, but I could not do it. At that crucial instant, a thought came to my mind. I knew what Don Juan meant when he spoke of the items of a path with heart being the shields. There was something I wanted to do in my life, something very consuming and intriguing, something that filled me with great peace and joy. I knew the ally could not overcome me. I moved my head away without any trouble before I could see his entire face. I began hearing all the other sounds. They suddenly became very loud and shrill, as if they were actually angry with me. They lost their patterns and turned into an amorphous conglomerate of sharp, painful shrieks. Don Juan helped me walk to a very small stream. The pressure in my ears subsided very rapidly, and it took only a few minutes to wash me. Don Juan looked at me, shook his head in approval, and said I had made myself solid in no time at all. He wanted to know all the details of my vision. He said that the holes in the sounds were used by sorcerers to find out specific things. What is important is that you saw the ally. That is your game. I've told you that we were going to hunt for something. You will have to go to him. We arrived in the same valley in the late afternoon of December 15, 1969. Don Juan mentioned repeatedly as we moved through the shrubs that directions or points of orientation were of crucial importance in the endeavor I was going to undertake. You must determine the right direction immediately upon arriving at the top of a hill, Don Juan said. As soon as you are on the top, face that direction. He pointed to the southeast. That is your good direction, and you should always face it, especially when you're in trouble. Remember that. We stopped at the bottom of the hills where I had perceived the hole. He pointed at a specific place where I had to sit down. He sat next to me and in a very quiet voice gave me detailed instructions. He said that as soon as I reached the hilltop, I had to extend my right arm in front of me with the palm of my hand down and my fingers stretched like a fan, except the thumb, which had to be tucked against the palm. The spot over which the palm of your hand feels warm as you sweep your arm is the place where you must sit and it is also the direction in which you must look, he said. If you are facing the south or the north, you have to make up your mind whether you feel strong enough to stay. If you have doubts about yourself, get up and leave. There's no need to stay if you're not confident. If you decide to stick around, clean an area big enough to build a fire about five feet away from your first point. The fire must be in a straight line in the direction you are looking. The area where you build the fire is your second point. 
Sit on your first point and look at the fire. Sooner or later, the spirit will come and you will see it. If your hand gets warm on any place toward the west, drop everything and run. Run downhill toward the flat area, and no matter what you hear or feel behind you, don't turn around. As soon as you get to the flat area, no matter how frightened you are, don't keep on running. Drop to the ground, take off your jacket, bunch it around your navel and curl up like a ball, tucking your knees against your stomach. You must also cover your eyes with your hands, and your arms have to remain tight against your thighs. You must stay in that position until morning. If you follow these simple steps, no harm will ever come to you. In case you cannot get to the flat area in time, drop to the ground right where you are. You will have a horrid time there. You will be harassed, but if you keep calm and don't move or look, you'll come out of it without a single scratch. Now, if your hand does not get warm at all, face the east again and run in an easterly direction until you are out of breath. Stop there and repeat the same maneuvers. You must keep on running toward the east, repeating these movements until your hand gets warm. After giving me these instructions, he made me repeat them until I had memorized them. Then we sat in silence for a long time. It was getting dark when Don Juan got up and without a word began climbing the hill. I followed him. At the top of the hill, I performed all the movements he had prescribed. Don Juan stood by a short distance away and kept a sharp look on me. I was very careful and deliberately slow. I tried to feel any perceivable change of temperature, but I could not detect whether or not the palm of my hand became warm. By that time it was fairly dark, yet I was still capable of running in an easterly direction without stumbling on the shrubs. I stopped running when I was out of breath, which was not too far from my point of departure. I was extremely tired and tense. My forearms ached, and so did my calves. I repeated there all the required motions and again had the same negative results. I ran in the dark two more times, and then while I was sweeping my arm for the third time, my hand became warm over a point toward the east. It was such a definite change of temperature that it startled me. I sat down and waited for Don Juan. I told him I had detected a change in temperature in my hand. He told me to proceed, and I picked all the dry brush I could find and started a fire. He sat to my left a couple of feet away. The fire drew strange dancing silhouettes. At times the flames became iridescent. They grew bluish and then brilliantly white. I explained that unusual play of colors by assuming that it was produced by some chemical property of the specific dry twigs and branches I had collected. Another very unusual feature of the fire was the sparks. The new twigs I kept adding created extremely big sparks. I thought they were like tennis balls that seemed to explode in midair. At a moment when I was about to lean over and pick up a twig, something like a moth or a spot in my retina swept across from right to left between myself and the fire. I immediately recoiled. I looked at Don Juan and he signaled me with a movement of his chin to look back at the flames. A moment later, the same shadow swept across in the opposite direction. Don Juan got up hurriedly and began piling loose dirt on top of the burning twigs until he had completely extinguished the flames. He executed the maneuver of putting out the fire with tremendous speed. By the time I moved to help him, he had finished. He stomped on the dirt on top of the smoldering twigs and then he nearly dragged me downhill and out of the valley. He walked very fast, without turning his head back, and did not allow me to talk at all. When we got to my car hours later, I asked him what was the thing I had seen. He shook his head imperatively, and we drove in complete silence. He went directly inside when we arrived at his house in the early morning, and he again hushed me up when I tried to talk. Don Juan was sitting outside behind his house. He seemed to have been waiting for me to wake up, because he started talking as I came out of the house. He said that the shadow I had seen the night before was a spirit, 
a force that belonged to the particular place where I had seen it. He spoke of that specific being as a useless one. It only exists there, he said. It has no secrets of power, so there was no point in remaining there. You would have seen only a fast, passing shadow going back and forth all night. Two days later, on December 17, 1969, Don Juan said in a very casual tone that I knew all the details and necessary techniques in order to go to the hills by myself. He urged me to proceed alone and affirmed that his company would only hinder me. I was ready to leave when he seemed to change his mind. You're not strong enough, he said. I'll go with you to the bottom of the hills. When we were at the small valley where I had seen the ally, he examined from a distance the formation in the terrain that I had called a hole in the hills and said that we had to go still further south into the distant mountains. It was late afternoon when we stopped. We sat down on some rocks. I was tired and hungry. All I had eaten during the day was some tortillas and water. Don Juan stood up all of a sudden, looked at the sky, and told me in a commanding tone to take off in the direction that was the best for me and to be sure I could remember the spot where we were at the moment so I could return there whenever I was through. He said in a reassuring tone that he would be waiting for me if it took forever. I walked away toward the southeast, turning around a couple of times to look at Don Juan. He was walking very slowly in the opposite direction. I climbed to the top of a large hill and looked at Don Juan once again. He was a good 200 yards away. He did not turn to look at me. I ran downhill into a small bowl-like depression between the hills and I suddenly found myself alone. I sat down for a moment and began to wonder what I was doing there. I felt ludicrous looking for a spirit catcher. I ran back up to the top of the hill to have a better view of Don Juan, but I could not see him anywhere. I ran downhill in the direction I had last seen him. I wanted to call off the whole affair and go home. I felt quite stupid and tired. Don Juan, I yelled over and over. He was nowhere in sight. I again ran to the top of another steep hill. I could not see him from there either. I ran quite away looking for him, but he had disappeared. I retraced my steps and went back to the original place where he had left me. I had the absurd certainty I was going to find him sitting there laughing at my inconsistencies. What in the hell have I gotten into, I said loudly. I knew then that there was no way to stop whatever I was doing there. I really did not know how to go back to my car. Don Juan had said that I always insisted on starting at a point I called the beginning, when in effect the beginning did not exist. And there, in the middle of those mountains, I felt I understood what he meant. It was as if the point of departure had always been myself. It was as if Don Juan had never really been there. And when I looked for him, he became what he really was, a fleeting image that vanished over a hill. I heard the soft rustle of leaves and a strange fragrance enveloped me. I felt the wind as a pressure on my ears like a shy buzzing. The sun was about to reach some compact clouds over the horizon that looked like a solidly tinted orange band when it disappeared behind a heavy blanket of lower clouds. It appeared again a moment later like a crimson ball floating in the mist. I lay down on my back. The world around me was so still, so serene, and at the same time so alien I felt overwhelmed. I did not want to weep, but tears rolled down easily. I remained in that position for hours. Finally it got fairly dark, I felt better. In fact, I felt almost happy. For me, the semi-darkness was much more nurturing and protective than the hard daylight. I stood up, climbed to the top of a small hill and began repeating the motions Don Juan had taught me. I ran toward the east seven times, and then I noticed a change of temperature on my hand. 
I built a fire and set a careful watch as Don Juan had recommended, observing every detail. Hours went by and I began to feel very tired and cold. I had gathered quite a pile of dry twigs. I fed the fire and moved closer to it. The vigil was so strenuous and so intense that it exhausted me. I began to nod. I was awakened suddenly by a loud crack. It appeared that the noise, whatever it was, had come from just above my left ear since I was lying on my right side. I sat up, fully awake. My left ear buzzed and was deafened by the proximity and force of the sound. I must have been asleep for only a short while, judging by the amount of dry twigs which were still burning in the fire. I did not hear any other noises, but I remained alert and kept on feeding the fire. The thought crossed my mind that perhaps what woke me up was a gunshot. Perhaps someone was around watching me, taking shots at me. The thought became very anguishing and created an avalanche of rational fears. I experienced a moment of terrible concern for my safety. I felt the tension in my shoulders and my neck. I moved my head up and down. The bones of my neck made a cracking sound. I still kept looking into the fire, but I did not see anything unusual in it, nor did I hear any noises. After a while, I relaxed quite a bit, and it occurred to me that perhaps Don Juan was at the bottom of all this. I rapidly became convinced that it was so. The thought made me laugh. I had another avalanche of rational conclusions, happy conclusions this time. I thought that Don Juan must have suspected I was going to change my mind about staying in the mountains, or he must have seen me running after him and taken cover in a concealed cave or behind a bush. Then he had followed me, and noticing I had fallen asleep, waked me up by cracking a branch near my ear. I added more twigs to the fire and began to look around in a casual and covert manner to see if I could spot him, even though I knew that if he was hiding around there I would not be able to discover him. Everything was quite placid. The crickets, the wind roughing the trees on the slopes of the hills surrounding me, the soft, cracking sound of the twigs catching on fire. Sparks flew around, but they were only ordinary sparks. Suddenly, I heard the loud noise of a branch snapping in two. The sound came from my left. I held my breath as I listened with utmost concentration. An instant later, I heard another branch snapping on my right. Then I heard the faint, faraway sound of snapping branches. It was as if someone was stepping on them and making them crack. The sounds were rich and full. They had a lusty quality. They also seemed to be getting closer to where I was. I had a very slow reaction and did not know whether to listen or stand up. I was deliberating what to do when all of a sudden the sound of snapping branches happened all around me. I was engulfed by them so fast that I barely had time to jump to my feet and stomp on the fire. I began to run downhill in the darkness. The thought crossed my mind as I moved through the shrubs that there was no flat land. I kept on trotting and trying to protect my eyes from the bushes. I was halfway down to the bottom of the hill when I felt something behind me almost touching me. It was not a branch. It was something I intuitively felt was overtaking me. This realization made me freeze. I took off my jacket, bundled it on my stomach, crouched over my legs and covered my eyes with my hands as Don Juan had prescribed. I kept that position for a short while, and then I realized that everything around me was dead still. There were no sounds of any kind. I became extraordinarily alarmed. The muscles of my stomach contracted and shivered spasmodically. Then I heard another cracking sound. It seemed to have occurred far away, but it was extremely clear and distinct. It happened once more, closer to me. There was an interval of quietness, and then something exploded just above my head. The suddenness of the noise made me jump involuntarily, and I nearly rolled over on my side. It was definitely the sound of a branch being snapped in two. The sound had happened so close that I heard the rustling of the branch leaves as it was being cracked. 
Next, there was a downpour of crackling explosions. Branches were being snapped with great force all around me. The incongruous thing at that point was my reaction to the whole phenomenon. Instead of being terrified, I was laughing. I sincerely thought I had hit upon the cause of all that was happening. I was convinced that Don Juan was again tricking me. A series of logical conclusions cemented my confidence. I felt elated. I tried to imagine what I would do next if I were Don Juan. The sound of something slurping jolted me out of my mental exercise. I listened attentively. The sound happened again. I could not determine what it was. It sounded like an animal slurping water. It happened again, very close by. It was an almost sensual, exasperating sound of feet slushing in deep mud. Someone seemed to be walking, running, trotting on mud all around me. A logical doubt occurred to me. If Don Juan was doing all that, he had to be running in circles at an incredible speed. The rapidity of the sounds made that alternative impossible. I then thought that Don Juan must have confederates after all. The slushings actually vibrated. In fact, their peculiar vibration seemed to be directed at my stomach, or perhaps I perceived their vibrations through the lower part of my abdomen. That realization brought an instantaneous loss of my sense of objectivity and aloofness. The sounds were attacking my stomach. The question occurred to me, what if it was not Don Juan? Apparently, the phenomenon I was experiencing was not a game, and the another one of Don Juan's tricks theory was only my rude explanation. I had cramps and an overwhelming desire to roll over and straighten my legs. I decided to move to my right in order to get my face off the place where I had gotten sick. The instant I began to crawl, I heard a very soft squeak right above my left ear. I froze on the spot. A flood of squeaks engulfed me at once. Then I heard something like the wings of a big bird sweeping over the tops of the bushes. The flapping wings of a flock of birds seemed to be pulling me up from above, while the squeaks of an army of rats seemed to be pushing me from underneath and from around my body. There was no doubt in my mind that through my blundering stupidity I had unleashed something terrible on myself. I clenched my teeth and took deep breaths and sang peyote songs. The noises lasted a very long time, and I opposed them with all my might. When they subsided, there was again an interrupted silence, as I am accustomed to perceiving silence. That is, I could detect only the natural sounds of the insects and the wind. The time of silence was for me more deleterious than the time of noises. I began to think and to assess my position, and my deliberation threw me into a panic. I knew that I was lost. I did not have the knowledge nor the stamina to fend off whatever was accosting me. I was utterly helpless, crouched over my own vomit. I thought that the end of my life had come, and I began to weep. I wanted to think about my life, but I did not know where to start. Nothing of what I had done in my life was really worthy of that last, ultimate emphasis, so I had nothing to think about. That was an exquisite realization. I had changed since the last time I experienced a similar fright. This time I was more empty. I had less personal feelings to carry along. I asked myself what a warrior would do in that situation, and I arrived at various conclusions. There was something about my umbilical region that was uniquely important. There was something unearthly about the sounds. They were aiming at my stomach, and the idea that Don Juan was tricking me was utterly untenable. The muscles of my stomach were very tight, although I did not have cramps any longer. I kept on singing and breathing deeply, and I felt a soothing warmth inundating my entire body. It had become clear to me that if I was going to survive, I had to proceed in terms of Don Juan's teachings. I repeated his instructions in my mind. I remembered the exact point where the sun had disappeared over the mountains in relation to the hill where I was and to the place where I had crouched. 
I reoriented myself, and when I was convinced that my assessment of the cardinal points was correct, I began to change my position so I would have my head pointing in a new and better direction, the southeast. I slowly started moving my feet toward my left, inch by inch, until I had them twisted under my calves. Then I began to align my body with my feet, but no sooner had I begun to creep laterally than I felt a peculiar tap. I had the actual physical sensation of something touching the uncovered area of the back of my neck. It happened so fast that I yelled involuntarily and froze again. I tightened my abdominal muscles and began to breathe deeply and sing my peyote songs. A second later, I felt once more the same light tap on my neck. I cringed. My neck was uncovered and there was nothing I could do to protect myself. I was tapped again. It was a very soft, almost silky object that touched my neck like the furry paw of a giant rabbit. It touched me again, and then it began to cross my neck back and forth until I was in tears. It was not a painful sensation at all, and yet it was maddening. I knew that if I did not involve myself in doing something, I would go mad and stand up and run. So I slowly began again to maneuver my body into a new position. My attempt at moving seemed to increase the tapping on my neck. It finally got to such a frenzy that I jerked my body and at once aligned it in a new direction. I had no idea whatsoever about the outcome of my act. I was just taking action to keep from going stark, raving mad. As soon as I changed directions, the tapping on my neck ceased. After a long, anguished pause, I heard a distant snapping of branches. The noises were not close anymore. The rustling sound and the cracking of branches gave me the feeling that the whole hill was on fire. My body was as tight as a rock. I was perspiring copiously. I began to feel warmer and warmer. For a moment, I was utterly convinced that the hill was burning. I did not jump up and run because I was so numb I was paralyzed. In fact, I could not even open my eyes. All that mattered to me at that point was to get up and escape the fire. I had terrible cramps in my stomach which started to cut my intake of air. I became very involved in trying to breathe. After a long struggle, I was capable of taking deep breaths again, and I was also capable of noticing that the rustling had subsided. There was only an occasional cracking sound. The snapping sound of branches became more and more distant and sporadic until it ceased altogether. I was able to open my eyes. I looked through my half-closed lids to the ground underneath me. It was already daylight. I waited a while longer without moving, and then I started to stretch my body. I rolled on my back. The sun was over the hills in the east. It took me hours to straighten out my legs and drag myself downhill. I began to walk toward the place where Don Juan had left me, which was perhaps only a mile. I thought of mountain lions and tried to climb up a tree, but my arms could not support my weight. I leaned against a rock and resigned myself to die there. I was convinced that I would be food for mountain lions or other predators. I woke up when something shook me. Don Juan was leaning over me. He said he was taking me to a large stream and was going to wash me there. On the way, he plugged my ears with some leaves he had in his pouch, and then he blindfolded me, putting one leaf on each eye and securing them both with a piece of cloth. Don Juan rubbed my entire body with leaves and then dumped me in a river. I felt it was a large river. It was deep. I was standing, and I could not touch the bottom. Don Juan was holding me by the right elbow. On the way to my car, I stayed very close to Don Juan. I stumbled scores of times, and he laughed. I noticed that his laughter was especially invigorating, and it became the focal point of my replenishing. The more he laughed, the better I felt. The next day I narrated to Don Juan the sequence of events from the time he left me. He laughed all the way through my account, especially when I told him that I had thought it was one of his tricks. 
You always think you're being tricked, he said. You trust yourself too much. You act like you know all the answers. You know nothing, my little friend. Nothing. Now you must go home. Don't return until you're healed and your gap is closed. I did not return to Mexico for months. I made the last entry in my field notes on October 16, 1970. As I approached Don Juan's house, I saw him sitting in his usual place under his ramada in front of the door. I parked in the shade of a tree, took my briefcase and a bag of groceries out of the car, and walked toward him, greeting him in a loud voice. I then noticed that he was not alone. There was another man sitting behind a high pile of firewood. Both of them were looking at me. Don Juan waved, and so did the other man. Judging from his attire, he was not an Indian, but a Mexican from the Southwest. He was wearing Levi's, a beige shirt, a Texan cowboy hat, and cowboy boots. I talked to Don Juan and then looked at the man. He was smiling at me. I stared at him for a moment. Here's little Carlos, the man said to Don Juan. And he doesn't speak to me anymore. Don't tell me that he's cross with me. Before I could say anything, they both broke up laughing, and only then did I realize that the strange man was Don Gennaro. You didn't recognize me, did you? he asked, still laughing. I had to admit that his attire had baffled me. Don Juan explained to him that I had been away for months because of an unfortunate incident with one of the allies. So you finally encountered an ally, Don Gennaro said. I think I did, I said cautiously. They laughed loudly. Don Gennaro patted me on the back two or three times. It was a very light tapping which I interpreted as a friendly gesture of concern. He rested his hand on my shoulder as he looked at me, and I had a feeling of placid contentment which lasted only an instant. For next, Don Gennaro did something inexplicable to me. I suddenly felt that he had put the weight of a boulder on my back. I had the sensation that he had increased the weight of his hand which was resting on my right shoulder until it made me sag all the way down and I hit my head on the ground. We must help little Carlos, Don Gennaro said, and gave a conspiratorial look to Don Juan. I sat up straight again and turned to Don Juan. I don't know anything about it, Don Juan said in a comically factual tone. He didn't put his hand on my shoulder. With that, both of them broke up laughing. What did you do to me, Don Gennaro, I asked. I just put my hand on your shoulder, he said innocently. Don Gennaro got up, cracked his bones, stretching his arms, and opened his eyes until they were round and looked crazy. Gennaro is going to make the desert tremble, he said, and went into the chaparral. Gennaro is determined to help you, Don Juan said in a confidential tone. He did the same thing to you at his house, and you almost saw. I thought he was referring to what had happened at the waterfall, but he was talking about some unearthly rumbling sounds I had heard at Don Gennaro's house. That was Gennaro's art, he said. Only Gennaro can do that. You almost saw them. I told him that it had never occurred to me to associate seeing with the strange noises I had heard at that time. And why not, he asked flatly. Well, seeing means the eyes to me, I said. He scrutinized me for a moment as if there was something wrong with me. I never said that seeing is a matter of the eyes alone, he said, and shook his head in disbelief. Well, how does he do it, I insisted. He has already told you how he does it, Don Juan said sharply. At that very moment I heard an extraordinary rumble. I jumped up and Don Juan began to laugh. The rumble was like a thunderous avalanche. Listening to it, I had the funny realization that my inventory of experiences in sound comes definitely from the movies. Don Juan held his sides as if they hurt from laughing. The thunderous rumble shook the ground where I stood. I distinctly heard the thump of what seemed to be a monumental boulder that was rolling on its sides. 
I heard a series of crushing thumps that gave me the impression that the boulder was rolling inexorably toward me. I experienced a moment of supreme confusion. My muscles were tense. My whole body was ready for fleeing. I looked at Don Juan. He was staring at me. I then heard the most frightening thump I had ever heard in my life. It was as if a monumental boulder had landed right behind the house. Everything shook, and at that moment I had a most peculiar perception. For an instant I actually saw a boulder the size of a mountain right behind the house. It was not as if an image had been superimposed on the scenery of the house I was looking at. It was not the view of a real boulder either. It was rather as if the noise was creating the image of a boulder rolling on its monumental sides. I was actually seeing the noise. The inexplicable character of my perception threw me into the depths of despair and confusion. Never in my life would I have conceived that my senses were capable of perceiving in such a manner. I had an attack of rational fright and decided to flee for my life. Don Juan held me by the arm and ordered me imperatively not to run away and not to turn around either, but face the direction in which Don Gennaro had gone. I heard next a series of booming noises which resembled the sound of rocks falling and piling on top of each other, and then everything was quiet again. A few minutes later, Don Gennaro came back and sat down. He asked me if I had seen. I did not know what to say. I turned to Don Juan for a cue. He was staring at me. I think he did, he said and chuckled. I wanted to say that I did not know what they were talking about. I felt utterly frustrated. I had a physical sensation of wrath, of utter discomfort. I think we should leave him here to sit alone, Don Juan said. They got up and walked by me. Carlos is indulging in his confusion, Don Juan said very loudly. October 18, 1970. I think I understand what Don Gennaro was trying to do, I said to Don Juan. I said that in order to draw him out. His continual refusal to talk was unnerving to me. Don Juan smiled and shook his head slowly as if agreeing with what I had said. I would have taken his gesture as an affirmation except for the strange glint in his eyes. It was as if his eyes were laughing at me. You don't think I understand, do you? I asked compulsively. I suppose you do. You do, in fact. However, understanding is not the real point. Your mind is set to seek only one side of this, he said. He took a dry twig and moved it in the air. He was not drawing in the air or making a figure. What he did resembled the movements he makes with his fingers when he cleans the debris from a pile of seeds. His movements were like a soft prodding or scratching the air with the twig. He turned and looked at me, and I shrugged my shoulders automatically in a gesture of bafflement. He drew closer and repeated his movements, making eight points on the ground. He circled the first point. You are here, he said. We are all here. This is feeling, and we move from here to here. He circled the second, which he had drawn right above number one. He then moved his twig back and forth between the two points to portray a heavy traffic. There are, however, six more points a man is capable of handling, he said. Most men know nothing about them. He placed his twig between points one and two and pecked on the ground with it. To move between these two points, you call understanding. You've been doing that all your life. If you say you understand my knowledge, you have done nothing new. He then joined some of the eight points to the others with lines. The result was a long trapezoid figure that had eight centers of uneven radiation. Each of these six remaining points is a world, just like feeling and understanding are two worlds for you, he said. Why eight points? Why not an infinite number as in a circle, I asked. I drew a circle on the ground. Don Juan smiled. As far as I know, there are only eight points a man is capable of handling. 
Perhaps men cannot go beyond that. And I said handling, not understanding. Did you get that? His tone was so funny I laughed. He was imitating or rather mocking my insistence on the exact usage of words. Your problem is that you want to understand everything, and that is not possible. If you insist on understanding, you're not considering your entire lot as a human being. Your stumbling block is intact. Therefore, you have done almost nothing in all these years. You have been shaken out of your total slumber, true, but that could have been accomplished anyway by other circumstances. After a pause, Don Juan told me to get up because we were going to the water canyon. As we were getting into my car, Don Gennaro came out from behind the house and joined us. I drove part of the way, and then we walked into a deep ravine. Don Juan picked a place to rest in the shade of a large tree. You mentioned once, Don Juan began, that a friend of yours had said when the two of you saw a leaf falling from the very top of a sycamore, that the same leaf will not fall again from that same sycamore ever in a whole eternity, remember? I remembered having told him about that incident. We are at the foot of a large tree, he continued, and now if we look at that other tree in front of us, we may see a leaf falling from the very top. He signaled me to look. There was a large tree on the other side of the gully. Its leaves were yellowish and dry. He urged me with a movement of his head to keep on looking at the tree. After a few minutes' wait, a leaf cracked loose from the top and began falling to the ground. It hit other leaves and branches three times before it landed in the tall underbrush. Did you see it? Yes. You would say that the same leaf will never again fall from that same tree, true? True. To the best of your understanding, that is true. That is only to the best of your understanding. Look again. I automatically looked and saw a leaf falling. It actually hit the same leaves and branches as the previous one. It was as if I were looking at an instant television replay. I followed the wavy falling of the leaf until it landed on the ground. I stood up to find out if there were two leaves, but the tall underbrush around the tree prevented me from seeing where the leaf had actually landed. Don Juan laughed and told me to sit down. Look, he said, pointing with his head to the top of the tree. There goes the same leaf again. I once more saw a leaf falling in exactly the same pattern as the previous two. When it landed, I knew Don Juan was about to signal me again to look at the top of the tree, but before he did, I looked up. The leaf was again falling. I don't understand how you're making me see a repetition of what I had seen before. What did you do to me, Don Juan? You're chained, Don Juan explained. You're chained to your reason. There's nothing to understand. Understanding is only a very small affair. So very small, he said. At that point, Don Gennaro stood up. He gave a quick glance to Don Juan. Their eyes met, and Don Juan looked at the ground in front of him. Don Gennaro stood in front of me and began swinging his arms at his side, back and forth in unison. Look, little Carlos, he said. Look, look. He made an extraordinarily sharp, swishing sound. It was the sound of something ripping. At the precise instant the sound happened, I felt a sensation of vacuity in my lower abdomen. It was the terribly anguishing sensation of falling, not painful, but rather unpleasant and consuming. It lasted a few seconds, and then it subsided, leaving a strange itch in my knees, but while the sensation had lasted, I experienced another unbelievable phenomenon. I saw Don Gennaro on top of some mountains that were perhaps ten miles away. The perception lasted only a few seconds, and it happened so unexpectedly that I did not have time really to examine it. I cannot recall whether I saw a man-sized figure standing on top of the mountains or a reduced image of Don Gennaro. I cannot even recall whether or not it was Don Gennaro. Yet at that moment I was certain beyond any doubt 
that I was seeing him standing on top of the mountains. However, the moment I thought that I could not possibly see a man ten miles away, the perception vanished. I turned around to look for Don Gennaro, but he was not there. The bafflement I experienced was as unique as everything else was happening to me. My mind buckled under the strain. I felt utterly disoriented. Don Juan stood up and made me cover the lower part of my abdomen with my hands and press my legs tightly against my body in a squat position. We sat in silence for a while, and then he said that he was truly going to refrain from explaining anything to me, because only by acting can one become a sorcerer. He recommended that I leave immediately, otherwise Don Gennaro would probably kill me in his effort to help me. You are going to change directions, he said, and you'll break your chains. He said that there was nothing to understand about his or about Don Gennaro's actions, and that sorcerers were quite capable of performing extraordinary feats. Gennaro and I are acting from here, he said, and pointed to one of the centers of radiation in his diagram. And it is not the center of understanding yet you know what it is. I wanted to say that I did not really know what he was talking about, but he did not give me time and stood up and signaled me to follow him. When we were getting inside the car, I looked around for Don Gennaro. Where is he? I asked. You know where he is, Don Juan snapped at me. Before I left, I sat down with him as I always do. I had an overwhelming urge to ask for explanations. As Don Juan says, explanations are truly my indulgence. Where's Don Gennaro? I asked cautiously. You know where, he said. No, I protested. No, I didn't know that. I was truthful at that. My mind refused to intake that sort of stimuli as being real. And yet, after ten years of apprenticeship with Don Juan, my mind could no longer uphold my old, ordinary criteria of what is real. And this concludes the show. There still is a little bit left in the reading of this story. But I will play that at the end of my show next week. Be sure to tune in as I start to reveal many of the hidden Toltec techniques of my lineage. Until then, this is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope, 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.